Turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us to Second Samuel. <clears throat> Second Samuel. And in chapter 23. Second <clears throat> Samuel 23. Well, we'll read a few verses at the beginning of the chapters. 2 Samuel 23 and at the beginning. Now these be the last words of David, the son of Jesse, said... And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning <clears throat> when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear, shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is my, uh, for this is my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And especially the words of verse 5. <clears throat> a few um, characters in biblical history can match the profile God gave to this man, David, the king of Israel. And for numerous reasons, he is up there with the greatest men that ever lived. He was Israel's most famous king, but he was also a linchpin in Messianic genealogy, in Messianic prophecy, and in Messianic typology. And God didn't hesitate to record the man's greatness. Verse 1 the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we um, saw in Psalm 89, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. And even the New Testament contributes to this great man's testimony. In Acts 13, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, it's easy to imagine a testimony of that caliber being recorded of someone like Joseph, perhaps, or Isaiah, or Daniel, because it is hard to find a stain on the character and the testimony of these men. They were fine holy men of God. They brought no shame on themselves and they brought no shame on the cause of God in this world. And that, my friends, is where the testimony of David becomes something of a conundrum for ourselves because 
he put many stains on his character. The man anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, was also a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, and a polygamist, a man who had many, many wives. And furthermore, he caused the unnecessary deaths of many people, including his own little child. You remember the man called Uriah. He was the husband of Bathsheba, with whom David committed adultery. And David, in callousness and cruelty, ordered his lieutenant, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, set Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in the front of the hottest battle and retire from them. Uriah wasn't the only man that died as a result of that. Many soldiers would have died because of David's evil plan. So these and other deaths left David pleading with God in his great psalm of repentance, free me from blood guiltiness. All these deaths were lying heavily on his conscience and on his mind. Now, that tragic testimony, my friends, is a harsh reality for humanity in sin. Because a stain-free testimony is all but impossible for us to achieve. We may not, of course, sink as low as David did, but nor can we ever escape these horrible stains of sin we bring upon ourselves. And furthermore, God doesn't allow us to think that we can. Here's what he has to say to us in the New Testament, Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even a great man like the Apostle Paul had to complain of himself, Oh, wretched man that I am. As I often say in preaching, my friends, the best, those of us who are Christians here this morning, the best we can do is damage limitation. We can never escape these stains on our character. So let's see if we can learn some lessons from David here. Let's look, first of all, at the importance of reflecting upon life. In verse 1, these be the last words of David. Now, it's evident that David is here in his latter years. He's looking back on his life, looking back on his reign. But this phrase at the beginning of verse 1 has caused much controversy amongst commentators, because some assume that David is here on his deathbed. Other commentators assume that, no, he's not yet on his deathbed. He's only referring to his last words as the psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Others still insist that it's a reference to his last inspired words. 
But whatever the case, it's obvious that he's in the twilight of his life, and the context suggests to us that these are words of reflection. And furthermore, he had much to reflect upon as a believer, as a father, as a husband, and as a king. Now, my friends, I think this is hugely important for all of us. We may live life at a very low key. We may seem somewhat anonymous to ourselves and to others. We may achieve little in this world, domestically, socially, as church members. However, this we will do at various stages in life, but almost certainly in the twilight of our lives, we will reflect upon how we have lived. We will reflect upon what we did and didn't do. We will reflect upon what we achieved and didn't achieve, what we said and what we didn't say. And it's always wise for us, therefore, to pay attention to the last words of those leaving this world. Here we're not given detail on David's reflections, but we do note the phrase at the beginning of verse 5. Though my house be not so with God. Now that phrase, in my view, has regret and shortcomings written all over it. In his domestic situation, this man left a trail of heartache and sorrow. As a king of Israel, he fell seriously short. We read a little bit about that in the second part of Psalm 89. Notice his words in the middle of verse 3. The rock of Israel spoke to me. That's a reference to God. And what did the rock of Israel have to say to him? He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. It's David's failure in that that led him to write these words, though my house be not so with God. He wasn't ruling justly and in the fear of God, my friends, when he seduced Bathsheba and when he planned her husband's murder. And nor did he rule justly and in the fear of God when he later took a census on Israel in defiance of God. And in his family circle, as I mentioned, one son died due to his father's sin. There was civil war amongst the other sons. And these are only examples of the turmoil caused in part, or perhaps largely, by this man's polygamy, by his insistence on marrying a number of women. Again, in defiance of the law of God. Hence, this cry, though my house be not so with God. No, I haven't ruled justly. No, I didn't rule in the fear of God. Now, before we explore that further, what makes this type of reflection so significant, even for ourselves. 
Well, two things stand out. First of all, when we are viewing life from a perspective of old age and maturity, we see things through quite a different lens in comparison to how we saw things in our younger days. We see the faults and the folly of so many of the decisions and the choices we have made in life. We recognize the debilitating effects of our attitude, our criticisms, our bitterness, our anger towards others. The second thing that stands out is that in our mature years, we see eternity looming ever larger. When I became a Christian first over 35, but 35 years ago, the only thought I ever gave to eternity was abstract thoughts about what heaven was going to be like. I'm now into my 70s, and I think more than ever of eternity, because it is looming larger and larger and larger in my mind and in my heart. And for believers especially, this life and all that it has to offer fades into second place to the great eternity. And I dare say that for many who are not Christians, but who are familiar with the Christian teaching, for you also, as you draw near to the twilight of your life, you will also experience this. The things of life will fade into insignificance as eternity draws nearer. For Christians, the hymn writer summed this up beautifully. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, the reality for Christians and for others is that a, a realization of a looming eternity compels us to make deep and profound inquiry within ourselves. And when we do this, you will discover that your thoughts will frequently swing from events in the past to the unknown elements of the future. And you'll be wishing you could see just as clearly these unknown elements as you can see the past events of your life. Now, if you haven't got Jesus Christ here this morning, let me assure you, your reflections and your anticipations of the future will be bleak indeed. Bleak indeed. But they don't have to be. They don't have to be, my friends, as we shall see shortly with David. But meanwhile, where does that all this leave yourself in a personal application of this point? What will your reflections and your anticipations be like? When it comes to your last words, what are your reflections and anticipations like now if you are in mature years and without Christ? 
Will your anticipations be light or darkness? Fear or peace? Hope or despair? Remember, Jesus Christ came into this world to offer light, peace, and hope through the gospel message. Don't leave these matters until you are in the twilight of life. Make sure that you grasp hold of these things now while you still have the opportunity and the mental capacity to close in with Christ, to repent of your sins, and to trust him as your savior. Let me move on to look at the believer's hope. Secondly, although my house be not so with God, yet, notice that word, yet, how thankful we should be, my friends, for the yets and the buts and the therefores of Scripture. Here's God putting, as it were, the brakes on his own course of judgment. This man, David, acknowledged that day God had every reason to judge him in, on many occasions in his life. Indeed, he provided God with stacks of evidence that would declare him guilty and pass condemnation upon him. And not only that, God saw others condemned for far less or on less evidence than he himself could be condemned on. Perhaps you remember the story of a man called Uzzah. Uzzah was a man who was accompanying the ark being transported to Jerusalem. But because that ark was transported in the wrong manner, on the orders of David, on a cart instead of being held shoulder high, the cart threatened to the, the ark threatened to fall off the cart, and Nusa put his hand out to 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 to, to steady it, a sincere uh, uh, thing to do on his part. But no common man should have touched that ark. God struck him down dead. Again, David's fault in a measure at least. In the twinkling of an eye, that man was condemned, but here's David with a mountain of evidence against him, and God still hasn't condemned him. Yet, yet, God withheld his judgment, refusing to mark his iniquity against him. Didn't the psalmist praise this very point? If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? So we can almost hear David's sigh of relief. Although my house be not so with God. Yes, I know all that evidence against me. Yet. Yet. Oh, my friend. Has God could I yet over the condemnation of your own sin? Remember, God doesn't do that arbitrarily. He must provide himself with a reason for putting a yet 
over your condemnation. His righteousness demands that. His justice demands that. And here's the reason. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Uh, you know that, of course, the Bible is replete with numerous covenants inspired by God. There's covenants made with men. There's covenants even made with nature. There's covenants relative to this life, and there's covenant rel covenants relative to eternity. Now, without going into detail uh, on this subject, the most important of these covenants is what we call the covenant of grace. And I believe that's the covenant God has in uh, David has in mind here. This is a covenant between believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is God's way of the covenant is God's way of bridging the gap between the infinite and the finite, between the creator and the creator, and between the guilty and the redeemed. It's his arrangement to secure the eternal salvation of boys and girls and men and women. Now, the key elements of this covenant of grace are God, Jesus Christ, sinners, and the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, if we use David as a model, we'll see how this works. Instead of punishing David in this mountain of guilt that hung over him, God transferred that guilt from David, lifted it off David's head, heart, and mind, and placed it on an animal called the scapegoat at the door of the temple in Jerusalem. That scapegoat was a type of the Lord Jesus. All this took place on the Day of Atonement. So instead of David dying under the condemnation and curse of God's law, the substitute died instead. Hence the significance of this yet. He found a yet in his experience. He found a substitute in his experience. Now, when all of this is superimposed upon Christ crucified, we see the true meaning of a covenant of grace. We've all been born under the condemnation and curse of God's will. I don't care who you are today, young, old, good, bad, innocent, or otherwise in your own eyes and the eyes of perhaps your parents. Listen to what the Bible has to say about you. Romans 5, verse 12. As by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. This is how we are found by God, under his condemnation and under his curse. And it's precisely at that point that we must find this yet. And the covenant of grace, my friends, is our only escape from this condemnation and this curse. Can you follow David in this, in your own personal experience? Has God given you a yet to cling to? Yet he hath made with me an everlasting 
covenant. There's nothing, my friends, that we need more, adults and children alike, than to have a substitute to bear our sins away from the eyes and presence of God. So ask yourself this morning, if the words of John the Baptist offer you hope. You remember what he said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. He was referring to the substitute taking away the sin of Israel. Have you found that substitute, my friends? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't rest in your prayers. Until you can also say. Yet. He has made with me. An everlasting covenant. Let me move thirdly. To the character of this covenant. Further down in verse 5. It's ordered. In all things. And sure. Notice how personal David makes this. He, God Almighty, has made with me, sinner of mankind, he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, of course, the covenant of grace is for all of God's people. However, David is seeing it here as you must see it. As if the covenant were made specifically and exclusively between Almighty God and yourself. That's how personal this matter must be. You see, David saw here an unbreakable link between himself and God. A link so strong that the aggregate sum of all his sins and all his guilt could never break it. Romans 8. Paul's conclusion on this matter. Nothing, absolutely nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, O Lord. It's an unbreakable link. Now, everything in this covenant is predicated on two things. Love and grace. Love and grace. And the primary function of it, of the covenant, is the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, and the glory of the Holy Spirit. But in this sense in particular, to secure the salvation of everyone that trusts in Jesus. So it's ordered in all things and sure. In other words, it takes care of everything. Our election, our calling, our regeneration, our sanctification, our glorification. It's all taken care of. Reminds us of the golden chain as we sometimes call it again in Romans 8. Whom he, did for, whom, he, whom he did foreknow, he predestinated. Whom he did predestinate, he called. 
Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. It's an unbreakable chain from earth to heaven. From you, if you're a believer, to the everlasting arms of God. Ordered in all things and sure. So that your providence, your personal circumstances, your health, your wealth, your poverty, and everything in between, from womb to tomb, fall under this caveat, ordered in all things and sure. It cannot fail. Failure is sort of the question when it comes to this. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, this is same thought expressed in a slightly different way. He which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul introduced those words with a similar assurance to David here because he first said this, be confident in this very thing. Being confident in this very thing. This is Christian assurance for you. By putting your faith, trust, and confidence in Jesus Christ and in the covenant of his grace. And furthermore, the promises and the conditions of this covenant are as unmovable as Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And then David followed this with an expression of deep satisfaction. Oh, that's hard to attain to in this world, my friends. Deep spiritual satisfaction. This is all my salvation and all my desire. Don't want anything else. This is all my salvation. This is all my desire. This is what Paul meant when he said, Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He's our all and in all. And one of the best tokens we can ever have of being born again is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is all my desire. Have you got a desire greater than Jesus Christ? If you have, my friend, you're in trouble with God. This is all my desire. Born-again Christians know what this desire is. They know that there is nothing else in this world that can satisfy this desire like having fellowship with Jesus in his suffering. Nothing. So here's a picture of what we truly could describe as a happy man. 
forgetting these things which are behind, laying hold of these things which are before me. He's a happy man with an all-consuming desire to be with Jesus, which is far better. But one of the interesting things about this beautiful text of Scripture is that it's like the Bible itself is totally realistic. It's totally realistic. He concludes his praise with a touch of reality. Look at the phrase at the end of the verse. Although he make it not to grow. For himself personally, everything was in order. As someone once said not all that long ago, a minister on his deathbed, somebody asked him, how were things ready for him? And he answered and said, all packed up and ready to go. But David was not so with his family. He knew there was still immense problems in his domestic situation and in his family circle. Strife and bitterness still prevailed. And that, my friends, sad as it may sound, is the reality most believers will face in the end. There is always something and there always will be something or someone that will cause us a measure of grief and sorrow. That's why God ordered Moses to put bitter herbs on the Passover table. These bitter herbs were to remind Israel constantly that they were living in a sin-sick world where bitterness is never far away from the Lord's people. But we who are Christians here this morning, we must never allow the reality of that bitterness to rob us of the joy and of the hope and of the confidence we gain from being in the covenant of grace with God in Christ. Now let me conclude this sermon by asking once again, what will your own reflections be in the twilight of your life on this earth? When the sands of time begin to sink fast, what are your thoughts going to be like? What will your mind be focused on? Oh, my friends, make sure that your joy, your hope, and your confidence will be rooted in this covenant of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then despite some things not being as they should be, you too can say, yet 
he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Lord, we do thank thee this Sabbath morning <clears throat> that we have the encouragement of thy covenant, the covenant of thy grace, the covenant that is sealed in the blood of the Lamb, promises that are yea and amen in our beloved Saviour. O Lord, strengthen our faith to go on eh, serving him and being obedient to him, being humbled under thy mighty hand. And if there are those here this morning who are still in the valley of decision, who are still struggling over these matters in their hearts and in their minds, grant, O Lord, that thou would give them the grace and of thy spirit to surrender totally and completely to the claims of Christ upon them. Remember us in mercy, continue with us into the day, for Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat>